Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. Your host here, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Look, there's a lot on social media about the finances pertaining to healthcare professionals. Healthcare professionals do accumulate a lot of debt during uh, medical school, during residency, during fellowship. And I see a lot of questions, how to manage debt and how to manage the financial aspect of your life when you are in the healthcare profession as a physician. And I came across Tyler Olson, who has really uh, been wonderful in providing much of free advice on social media. So I approached him and asked him to come on the podcast to talk about financial advice and financial planning to physicians and medical students as they go through their career. Tyler owns his own Olson Consulting uh, firm, which is a registered investment advisor and uh, really, um, he has been instrumental on social media in providing a lot of uh, advice. Uh, uh, obviously, as you know, this podcast is not sponsored by anyone. I do not make any money. So that is my financial disclosure. And uh, obviously, no one is getting paid to appear on this podcast. But, you know, if you play your cards right as a guest or as a listener, you could get one of my healthcare unfiltered podcast t-shirts. These are the famous t-shirts that you see them all over social media. Do not forget to reach out to me by Twitter or by email. Uh, before I air this podcast, please don't forget to let me know how I'm doing. You can direct message me on Twitter. You can at Shadi Nabhan. You can visit my website, shadinabhan.com and let me know how I'm doing. And as always, reach out and provide any suggestion or advice. So, Tyler, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. This is your first time on the show. Hopefully, it won't be last. If you play your cards right, I mean, you could get you could get asked in. You could get like a podcast T-shirt. I'm telling you. I mean, these are important uh, nuggets. But uh, tell us a little bit about you. I mean, who you are, where you live, what you do, and how you got to where you are. What What was your career journey to get you where you are? Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's nice to talk with you. Uh, I know we've messaged a lot, and um, I appreciate uh, the messaging that you're trying to convey uh, to uh, the medical community. I have been a financial planner by trade since 2005. 2005. So you started at 10. I mean, you you barely look 30. <laughs> oh, okay. I appreciate that. <laughs> I wish I was. I am... How old am I? I always forget. I think I'll be... <laughs> I'll, be I'll be 39 in a month. <laughs> um, so... Um, yeah, no, I started very, I started quite young though, because my father is a financial planner. So I had the privilege of being able to like see it as a young kid. Like I was, I was learning how to trade stocks when I was like 11 years old. Like I, I definitely lost uh, some savings then just trying out like the dot com uh, stock boom and subsequent crash activity, but it was interesting. And um, I just have been around it for a long time. Um, but I got into the industry what it, in what is called the a brokerage firm sort of setting. And that's where most financial advisors reside. And it's where they will manage people's money for them. And then they get paid by selling investment products or by actually managing a sum of money. And, um, and then they help them with 
you know, helping to grow their wealth over time. But, you know, financial planning is like investing and like helping people to grow in their net worth is so it, it's very important, but it is just one piece. And I realized that as I was progressing through my career, I was there at that firm for 10 years, that there were situations when people really needed help with something that had nothing to do with investing. In fact, they didn't have any money to invest. They would have paid me for advice, but I didn't really recognize that it was possible to like work as a financial planner where someone just paid me a flat fee and then I would help them with whatever. That wasn't, I didn't realize that. Um, and so a lot of times I would try to help people, but then they wouldn't have any money to invest and then I'd be working for free. And I saw that the incentive, the financial incentive was very much skewed toward people who already have significant amounts of money. Then I got to become better and better friends with my own primary care physician. And I got to understand what he went through in terms of medical school debt, in terms of the delayed start to uh, a very, you know, it's, it's, it's a very respectable income once an attending physician reaches that point, but it is delayed. And it's the, that dynamic is something that I was like, wow, like there are a lot of decisions that a hypothetical person who is, you know, if you're like talking the traditional route of straight from undergrad into medical school, you've got a 23 year old, a 25 year old, 27 year old who has significant financial decisions to make. And if they came to me under that previous setting, like I'd be like, yeah, I can try to help you, but my focus is not going to be on them. My, cause all of us, no matter where we are, we are incentivized by money because we need it in order to live. Um, we would all, it would be great to be philanthropic at all times, but it's just not possible. And so, um, I got to meet some other people in my industry who were talking about like this, like flat fee service. And then I realized that maybe I could figure out a way to structure a business like that and to help early career physicians to make financial decisions. Um, now I have that as a business and that's, you know, I have to make a living too. And I, in fact, just like yesterday, I was having some pretty intense discussions about my own fee structure with people on social media. And it's it's been pretty very eye-opening for me to like continue to learn the mind of many medical students and trainees and attending physicians that I still, you know, I'm still learning and I want to like better understand. Uh, but it's been intense because like a lot of people, they can't even afford anything. Like even like a flat fee, like, oh, well, it's a flat fee. It's $550, for example, that's prohibitive for many medical students and many, many trainees. And so then I, as I think because of how you have met me on social media, what you see there is my effort to try to bridge that gap from, med, you know, pre-meds to like medical students and, and trainees. If they have financial decisions to make, can they find a safe place to learn without having to, you know, fully trust their minds and decisions to someone that is being paid, you know, it's, and that's like, I respect, I respect my industry. And like, I think there's a lot of good people that do, that do good work, but there's just, there's a huge gap between those that can like afford like full on services and like the, the need, like there is a huge, huge need. And so what you see there is me trying to be like, here, let's try to, let's try to flood the community of people in medicine on Twitter in particular, with as much information as possible that is reliable and simple. And then they can 
figure it out and then move on and continue with their learning and training. Very interesting. Tyler, I want to get back a little bit when, you know, in financial planning, what, what, what school is that? Did you go to like, what, what college graduate degree? What's the, what's the career path to become quote unquote financial planner? That's a great question. And another issue of our industry, you don't, you, I, I don't even know if you need to have a high school diploma. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Well, it's it's a huge problem because like, you know, how does one decide like, oh, a financial planner is worthy of my trust? Why? Like, what is the educational background? Now, there are private organizations uh, such as the, um, the Certified Financial Planning Board, um, CFP is the designation. And you have to have a an undergraduate degree, and then you also have to go through some supplementary courses that are pretty intense. And then you have to take a couple of exams. It is very intense. Um, for me, I got my undergrad degree in finance and accounting, but I didn't actually pursue the CFP because the first 10 years of my career, it was with under an umbrella where it was like, well, it doesn't really matter whether you have that or not. Now, like, I don't just later in life, like I've, I've got other things, like I don't want to deviate my time to like additional study, because there's also something to be said for experience. Now, you know, sometimes people are like, Oh, are you a CFP? I'm like, No. Um, but, you know, I, I try to, I try to demonstrate trust in other ways. But the typical trustworthy financial planner will be a certified financial planner. Anyone else who is also like under what's called that flat fee model, they work for what's called a registered investment advisor. And that's what my business is. It's registered with the state of Michigan and uh, through their securities department. And so I get audited by them. And so I am held to a fiduciary standard as a result. The CFP designation is also a fiduciary standard. So, um, so, but, but, but you can do what you do with um, a college degree, or do you do, you, or must you have a postgraduate degree? Like, you know, accounting. There's a CF. I think uh, there's an account degree. There's an MBA. There's other things. These are not necessarily needed mm -hmm. to for that, right? No, no. You you don't have to have you don't have to have an undergraduate degree, an associate's degree. Um, to call yourself a financial advisor or financial planner. And that's a big problem because then you have people that really don't know what they're doing. Um, even people who are just selling a product who call themselves an advisor. And so, and this is a big problem because, you know, someone in medicine, they like, they're in medical school. And like, I've talked to so many students. I'm like, what, do you have any time for like when they focus on like business or personal finance or understanding like, what it is to work with financial advisors if you decide to do that in the future. And there are some schools that do prioritize it, which is great. And then there are also some residency and fellowship programs that dedicate some money to actually have uh, support internally, which is a fantastic thing, but it is not across the board. And so a student or a resident, they finally have a sliver of time to try to look at their financial situation. And it's difficult to be able to uh, you know, to look for like who is trustworthy and who's not. It's a big problem in our industry. And then, and then you, when you started, you started with your dad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So, so, but your dad's practice was not focused only on healthcare. I presume. I'm just assuming he was doing right. all kind of things. Yeah, he was doing all sorts of things. He, you know, he had what we call like a generalist financial planning firm. And when I started this own firm, Olson Consulting, it was uh, that was just my that was just my creation. Yeah. And, but um, I'm I'm trying to think like before you started because I want to get into what made you decide to start your own firm aside from probably you don't want to work for your dad forever. But aside <laughs> but aside from that though, what kind of I, I don't know? Give me like two or three scenarios where somebody walks into your the, your consulting firm when you were with your dad and what type of questions? I mean, maybe somebody was has a net worth $100 million, say, I don't know what to do with the money, help me. And somebody has $10,000, want to get to $10 million. Like what, what is the range of questions that you were getting? So like I had people who, like this one person, I remember she's a, she's a police officer and um, she had some uh, like uh, dental related issues. And she was trying to figure out dental insurance as well as the disability insurance that she had through her, you know, police department that she worked for. And it was very complicated. There was lots of, lots of things to delve into to help her with that. And she is so, like, I've known her for a long time. And uh, so I'll, I'll give you an, like an example of like how that conflict worked. She had a, she comes into the office when I first met her and she's like, I've got, this Roth IRA and I've got a 401k at work and I've got to figure out this dental stuff and disability insurance. I was like, okay. And at the time, and this is what I mean about financial incentives, as much as I was trying to like make sure I paid attention to all the things that she mentioned, what struck in my mind was what do I got to take care of? I need to figure out a way to convince her to let me manage her Roth IRA. That way I can invest it and that way I can make money off of it. And then I can help her with everything else. That's how it goes. So I did, you know, she, we worked together in that way. And then I did help her with those things. And under that sort of arrangement, you have like, you know, $5,000. I think I made, I think I made like $50 a year in that regard. Like that was like managing her Roth IRA was the way in which I got compensated for helping her. So I was paid $50 per year to then also help her with, you know, this other stuff. And so unlike the amount of time involved versus money, it wasn't very good for me. It was very good for her. And like, she's very dear and I'm glad that I was able to help her, but it's not really sustainable as a business to like make that happen. Like I, I wouldn't be able to take care of my family in that way at, you know, for $50 a year. So that was one thing that piqued me, piqued my interest in like changing things up. The other was actually a retired physician and he had a lot of money and we managed money for him. And then there was lots of, like he would want to like buy and sell stocks and stuff like that. And there was a tremendous amount of money being made from him. Like, like, $18,000 a year for like managing investments. And now there were some times when he wanted to like, like we had some mutual funds, some investment funds uh, that were kind of on autopilot, but then he also had like some individual stocks he liked to buy and sell. And in this case, I think there was probably something like, 
five to six hours a year spent with him on this for eighteen thousand dollars wow that's amazing that's and it's that's, like that's, that's a lot of money <laughs> yeah and that's not right like and that was that was under that arrangement now i should say too this was not my dad's firm <laughs> Uh, it was someone else's. We both worked for another firm, right? But uh, but then 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 but then the reason you pivoted, the reason you became interested in healthcare specifically, was it because you became closer to your primary care position, or because you were seeing a lot of these clients coming to that firm who were in healthcare, and you felt there was a lot of confusion because we never get training into that. Mm -hmm. So it was largely my relationship with my primary care physician and like learning the backstory. And not just about what I mentioned to you yet about debt, delayed income and such like that, but also the challenges of uh, of working around insurance companies, the stress involved with that, the amount of time that physicians have to commit. Like, so even like after training is done, many times I've heard they're like, yeah, once, you know, just because you're done with training, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're going to work 40 hours a week now. There's a tremendous amount of time sacrifice on the part of physicians that I was learning. And I learned this through him. And then I also started to learn it through the medical community on Twitter. Cause I was already on Twitter. I've been on Twitter since 2011. And it was like around 2018 when I started to notice the people in medicine talking about student debt and about like the time involved with getting like prior authorization stuff and just uh, call responsibilities and lots about debt and time. And I realized there is a lot that money decisions that why, that effective money decisions can do to like make the best of the situation, even if it is going to be hard for a while, but just to try to lay out a longer term plan for actual wealth creation. But then also, what is that wealth creation meant to do? How can it save this you know hypothetical physician some time where they can start having more career freedom when they're 45, when they're 50, when they're 55, whatever the numbers say, what can they do to be able to start to do, I don't know, like, even if you don't want to quit your job, having the freedom, like the mental freedom, you know, like I could, I could do something else. If things get toxic here, I could change things up. If my employer starts demanding things of me because that they think that they can just like hold it over me because I need this income, no matter what, like I wanted to create and education that would allow people to see what can I do early on to allow that freedom to come sooner. Okay, well, that's actually a perfect segue in terms of what can you do early on, because I agree with you. I think financial freedom, in my view, in my humble view, is not about the fact that I want to go and buy whatever I want. I view financial freedom about I want to, I get to do whatever I want. If I choose, you know, to just take a six months off and just sit down and do something else, I want to be able to do that. So, so you know, you moved on, you pivoted, and you opened your own consulting firm, which is um, Olson Consulting. Mm -hmm. uh, is it only for healthcare, or is it also healthcare is just one part of what you do, or is it completely a healthcare consulting firm? Um, I mean, as far as my intentional efforts it is completely for those in healthcare okay sometimes i get a person here or there who's not in medicine who will approach me and they'll say hey i'm not a physician but can we work together and like 
that works from time to time. So okay. I'm not like, I don't like shut it down, but I am also not, I also, I'm not like, oh yeah, like I'll work with, like, I'm not even, I don't even do a lot of outreach in terms of like, I want to work with physician's assistants. I want to work with registered nurses. Like I do sometimes because they approach me, but my outbound communication is exclusively to physicians. So early on, um, I think it, it goes without saying that, you know, you you know, somebody who wants to get into medical school, they got into medical school. A medical student is probably focused on learning as much as possible, absorbing the information, passing the tests, the exams, and, you know, hoping to get into a good residency spot that uh, he or she really aspires to, to be at. I, I, I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, that probably the last thing on their mind is financial, quote unquote, planning. What they're thinking about, I have a lot of debt I need to pay. If they're lucky enough and they have a dad or a parent that is able to pay that for them, then they're fine. But most people probably don't have that. Mm -hmm. So when you're dealing with medical students who are accumulating debt, what are you able to offer them in terms of financial advice, except for hopefully you'll be able to pay that before you're on Medicare? So, I mean, as far as debt management is concerned, there are there are there are two primary factors at play that are that go beyond just the pay it off as quickly as you you know when you become an attending physician you're just going to pay it off one it is helping them to see the trajectory of that debt and where it's going to go because like a medical student and an like a, a an intern or like someone that's like PGY two or three, and they're not yet there where they can see things changing for the better. It can be very depressing. And I'm very much, I think it's very important to try to focus on what can be supportive of mental health. And so I encourage medical students and residents to plot out what's going to happen to their debt, because as like, it's pretty common for, I mean, right now, because of the COVID relief, there hasn't been interest accrual on federal student loans, but normally, and starting back in January, there will be. And it is not uncommon for the debt to grow by $15,000, $20,000 per year. And that that's not great at all, but it's better to know that it's coming so that you can, you can allow yourself to not be surprised by it. You know it's going to be bad, but it's better to know how bad it's going to be and then also see, okay, I'm done with training. What's going to happen after that? Let's talk a little bit about how I'm going to plan to plan to pay it off because that is then that helps you to start to see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Tyler, is there is there a, are there statistics into what is the average or the median debt that a medical student has after completing completing medical school before they start residency? What are we talking about? What's the average in the US? Well, that that's a difficult question to answer because when, like, in fact, Medscape did, they did a poll on that just a couple months ago, and they're trying to break it up. They're trying to get a little bit more nimble about the data, but it's hard because I think there's something like 22% of graduating medical students have no debt, whereas the other, you know, the the other um 
78% do to some degree. And it tends to be in like the 250,000 or more range. So there's this big gap between having no debt and having like $250,000 in debt. What I don't have, I, I don't have something to rely on that is extremely wide and, and assuredly accurate, but in the range of $350,000 is a very, very common number that I'm seeing. Okay. I see some that I see some that are north of 500. I see some that are like a little bit under 200. But most people that I have interacted with who have funded their medical school education with debt are in the three to four hundred thousand dollar range. So the folks who are lucky, 22 percent, did not have a debt. I think that's you know we can talk about them later on. But but we're going to focus a little bit more on the folks who actually graduate medical school and have some element of debt, which. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the 300 to 350 sounds believable, to be honest. I mean, again, it does pass the smell test. I realize some folks probably less, some folks are a little bit more, but, you know, 300,000 seems to be reasonable to believe. So during medical school, is there anything the medical student could do whatsoever aside from meditating, I guess, and just, you know, hoping things will get better or, and I get the planning piece. So you plan, but is there anything they can actually tangibly do in preparation? Uh, the one thing that they can do is learn how to manage cash flow, And that's like, that's a, that's a term I use more often than budgeting because budgeting is more about individual expenses and understanding, well, what do I pay for and how much do I receive in loan distributions um, or disbursements? And that's important to know, but cash flow is more of like a historical meaning to it. Because what you want to see is learning how your money is moving. You know, you know, the you get a loan disbursement in September and then it slowly trickles down until January and then you get another loan disbursement and it goes down. But over several semesters, what is happening to that bottom line? Right before you get a new loan disbursement, where is it at? Have you spent everything? Have you spent more than everything? Are you building up credit card debt? Um, are you not spending it all? And are you saving something? Now, how realistic it is for a medical student to save some of their loan disbursement is very subjective. And I hold no judgment against medical students that accrue credit card debt because I think that that it's just, there's just way too many scenarios to say whether it is always possible to just rely on your federal student loan disbursements. Sometimes it depends on your FAFSA application too. Cause like if you have parents that had an income and like you had like some job or something, and then they wouldn't approve you for like more then you get less and then you have to, you know, cost of attendance is one thing, but then there's the cost of living and like, how do you manage that? It also depends on where you live in the country because some places are very expensive. And so there are some variations on there, but in your particular situation, I say, what is realistic? What is reasonable? Are you able to reduce unnecessary expenses that will not greatly inhibit your mental health? then you should identify those. You should figure out, well, what what am I spending money on? Because I do see fourth-year medical students coming in and they're very stressed because they either have like some private loans, you know, through like uh, Sally Mae or Discover. And they're like, what do I do with this debt? Because like their federal loans are big enough as it is, but there's like an income-driven repayment plan system in place to help them to just have small amounts through training. And their payments on those will be relatively low until they become an attending physician. But this private debt, whether it's these um, 
you know, whether it's just residency relocation loans or other types of like, or credit card debt, they're much more unforgiving. And so for someone that is like in undergrad right now, and I'm actually, actually what you're looking at here, this whiteboard is my classroom. I'm working on some class classes for undergrad students who are going to go into medical school to talk about cash flow and understanding what that is and trying to control what you can control early on will help to minimize additional debt and hopefully consider how they could increase if they have any chance of being able to have some savings for here. What's, what, what's, what are examples of when you talk about unnecessary expenses? You know, just an, examples of some of these pitfalls that you really, really feel are easy to avoid or mitigate without, uh, because you mentioned without affecting quote unquote your mental health. So I'm trying to get an example. I don't know, maybe eating out less. I mean, is that what we're talking about? Uh, what, what are we talking about? Sometimes, I mean, there there are some scenarios where like eating out is like can be excessive. And again, that word is like, what is excessive? I don't know, but it's just a person needs to, well, let me, let me give you an example. And then I, I want to, cause like rules in financial education, they're, they can be useful, but they can also be hurtful because sometimes they just don't fit a person's situation. But I'll give you an example of something that I see commonly subscriptions that a person has forgotten that they're paying for and they don't really use. I don't have like I don't have any issue with subscriptions for something that you're using. Like I have a subscription for my toothbrush, like and it's great. And uh, but I use it. Um, but there have been scenarios where like our family, like we we're paying for a subscription. I was like, oh, that's right. That's right. We're paying for that. And that, you know, it's like, what why am I doing that? And it's like it's a mental block. You know, we get distracted. Life is crazy. Absolutely. So, like, that's an example of something like evaluate what's going out of your credit card statement every month. What's coming out of your checking account every month? Are you using the things that you're paying for? Um, but the second piece that's more of like a principle level kind of thing is recognizing that what we pay for today and what we put on debt, whatever kind of debt it is, we need to try to be more intentional with those decisions because they will need to be paid back plus interest. Now, there there's many things that you know you can come up with that they're that it's justified you know you need it in order to like be yourself in order to like have uh be able to focus on your learning and to be able to maintain relationships um i think sometimes rules financial rules that are like straight across the board like like you probably uh, you may have heard this like have you seen people ask like well what percentage of your income should go toward your rent i have i believe folks said one third is okay mhm mm yeah yeah. And like, there's, you know, like to say like, and that might be from a pragmatic standpoint, that may be wise, but in an individual, like a, applied on an individual basis, right? is it always possible? So like, that's what I mean about the, right. the mixed bag of rules, because they like in the same thing with like save 20% of your of your income for retirement savings. That's what's typically said to attending physicians. And is that realistic for every single person in every scenario? No way. And so there needs to be conversation about the principles of our financial decisions and our spending so that if we can't achieve 
like an ideal percentage of whatever that is, you know, rent or like savings or whatever it is, then we want to keep the door open for discussion so that if there's a scenario or there's some scenarios in which people cannot achieve those, what is realistic? And let's talk about that so that people can still feel like they're moving forward. As a medical student, do you think medical students are able to pay any of their uh, debt? I mean, they're accumulating debt, so you can accumulate as little as possible. What can, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I presume they can cut the expenses. Can they do 401k? Can they contribute to retirement? Like what other elements or everything is on hold until they finish medical school? Uh, the only scenario in which I see medical students being able to pay off their medical school tuition debt is if they are, you know, they have a partner who has a fairly high income or if they have some sort of inheritance, there is even one person I know of who had some sort of settlement because of a uh, past injury. And so- Tyler, what, what's what's the percent, by the way? What's the interest rate on medical school debts? Like in general, what do they range at? Uh, graduate medical school debt, which is, they're all unsubsidized loans. They charge interest the moment they get the disbursement and the interest rate is currently 6.54%. That's pretty high. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like, see, it's tough because the federal loan program is something that is taxpayer involved. And so it's tricky because like if they're to, if they're to find a way to make it less expensive, it always comes back to like, well, this is going to be a taxpayer responsibility sometime in the future. And so like even when they came when when Biden came out with that $10,000 forgiveness there's a there's a lot of people who are like well physicians they definitely earn above average income why are they getting this sort of forgiveness or like public service loan forgiveness that's another thing there've been dozens and dozens of physicians that I know personally who've gotten PSLF and they've had 2 3 400,000 dollars in student loans wiped out and that is like on the on the one hand, on an individual level, like I know these people and they're like, they've worked so hard and they've given so much in their academic setting. And like they've, you know, they've sacrificed years in training when they were making like, you know, $12, $13 an hour, uh, you know, if you run the numbers. And so like, I totally think that they are deserving of that. But like on a wider scale, like it looks like, well, who deserves this? And so it's it's really, really complicated to like, and people say, well, you know, we shouldn't just do forgiveness. We should do lower interest rate. And I agree, but then it's just, it's hard to be able to figure out, well, the money's got to come from somewhere. So it comes down to priorities. It comes should, down to priorities of the society. Should a medical student try to buy a house? Probably not, but that's, again, it it just depends. Like, I'm just I trying think to think like, you know, let's say your rent is, I don't know, $1,500 a month and you're mm -hmm. able to buy a house with the same rent, you know how it is. And you know. I mean, if they have, if they have savings that they could pay for, like, cause they wouldn't be able to qualify for a physician's loan, which is very popular because you can put 0% down and you don't have to pay private mortgage insurance uh, because you are graduated from medical school and you are you're in residency or fellow or whatever, but medical students, they don't have access to that yet. So they have to be putting down, I would say at least 3% and probably five 
at the minimum. And then you have two to 3% of the purchase price in closing costs. So on a $300,000 home, you're talking about $24,000 that you have to have available. So if they yeah. have that, that's one thing. If they do, then they have that optionality. But then the second thing is what, where are they going to go? Because right. there are some, like there are some medical schools. Like I know, I know someone who had it in their arrangement with their medical school that then they would, they would proceed to go to residency right at that same location. And then they, then they're not moving. So right. then it would, then it could make sense. But like so many other, you know, medical students, they have no idea where they're going to go. So now you finished medical school and you're starting residency. And as you know, some residencies are three years and others could be five years and others are six years. And what struck me is what you mentioned earlier when we started the show, that there's a lot of this delayed, you know, there's a lot of delayed gratification when you choose a medicine medical career because other folks are making money, especially those financial advisors, financial planners. But uh, but then, uh, uh, you know, in medicine, you are delaying this. So you start your medical residency. A, what can you do during residency that might actually help your plan? And B, are you able to start paying off your medical school loans while you are a resident? Being able to pay off your loans, it can be. Again, the, the factor of whether or not you are, like you have a uh you know a spouse or domestic partner that earns an income that can help you in that way and you have an agreement where they want to want to do that if if you're someone who knows that you are not going to work in the academic field after training and you know that you will subsequently need to pay off your debt then you might be of the disposition where you could at least pay some of the interest but you're not really in a position to do much if you're just talking about the resident salary. Uh, because like if you have that, if you've got $300,000 in debt, your your interest accrual is over $18,000 a year. And that that's after tax money. So that comes out of your checking account after your, um, you know, after your income taxes have been paid. And so like if you're in the situation where you're making... If you're making $60,000 gross, that's like $42,000 a year after your like after taxes are taken out. And like if we were to take that scenario and say, "Well, let's let's try to pay off $18,000 of debt every year." That means that the resident would be living on $2,000 a month in total. That's rent, car payments, insurance, food, gas, subscriptions, utilities, saving, hopefully. So, I would say outside of some other factors that are beyond the resident salary, uh, that is a prohibitive idea. Like you can try to pay down some of it and like there can be an idea to do that because like 6.54% is not a small sum of interest. But there's other things that are also very necessary to pay for. I mean, aside from just living and being able to have an emergency fund like an emergency fund is so important. Even if you have federal student loans, I say you prioritize building three months worth of expenses into a savings account that we call the emergency fund. And because stuff comes up, and if you don't have that, if you decide I'm going to prioritize paying off my student loans and I'm not going to have any savings, then when something bad happens, like your car breaks down or you have some other unexpected expense, a family member dies and you have to fly home and you weren't expecting it. Where is that money coming from? 
it's going credit, on a credit card. Exactly. Credit card. Exactly. And so like, even though like, yeah, it, it's not great to have that interest accrual and it keeps ballooning up over time, then like, but in the interim, there's extreme levels of stress. It goes up and down and up and down. And this is why I'm talking about, this is why I talk about mental health, because it is worth it to continue to pay that interest rate and build up some savings instead uh, because life happens. So, so then, you know, um, then you have the fellowship. I mean, now you finish residency and some folks are able to go into primary care or family practitioners, uh, general surgery, whatever it is, but some do an additional specialty. I mean, as an example, I did hematology, oncology, three more years after medicine. Some folks do cardiovascular surgery, whatever it is that they actually do afterwards. During that, I mean, can they do anything still? I mean, uh, you obviously hear a lot of physicians moonlight and do extra shifts because they want to try to accumulate some wealth and be able to pay off some of the debt, uh, which also takes another toll by itself because it's taken away from your downtime. I mean, you have to have, there's only number of hours in the day. What advice do you give these folks after residency um, that they can possibly do differently? So fellowship from a financial standpoint is really challenging because you really start to see your federal student loans ballooning. Like if you're at, if you're, if you were in a, a three-year, uh, you know, internal medicine program, you know, and you had $300,000 in debt, now you've got closer to $360,000 in debt. And now you're going to go into fellowship and say, it's going to be another three years. It's going to turn into you know, $420,000. And that's very stressful, but your income is still, it could be a little bit higher. I know sometimes fellows can make higher, like maybe like 70,000 or something, but sometimes I've seen it even be lower than what they were making in residency. So that's not a guarantee. What I recommend that they do is just can reevaluate their trajectory again, just to like kind of give them some confidence that there is a conclusion to all of this and that it will be okay eventually. Putting the student loans on the back burner is really, really important when you can't actually do anything about it. Yeah. Um, one thing to consider too is like if you're going into fellowship, uh, there is a higher chance that public service loan forgiveness is a viable option for you because it's a 10-year commitment working in academics. And very much, you know, very many uh residency programs and fellowship programs are nonprofit organizations. So if you do six years of training, how realistic is it that you would find enjoyment and fulfillment in working in, in a nonprofit setting for another four years? Then you would be paying those income-driven repayment amounts. Um, that like, and that's why like you can make some initial decisions early on in residency about like which income-driven repayment plan you're going to go on. And then if you don't go into academics or the nonprofit setting, then you can you can pivot and then refinance your federal loans to a lower interest rate and then pay it off with your attending income. But you can leave that option open until you know for sure what you're going to do after training. Um, I encourage people in fellowship to continue to reevaluate that. The second thing is, aside from building up an emergency fund, I think that it's very important for those in training, if possible, to contribute to either their program's 403B retirement plan if their program offers a matching contribution, which that means, 
if there's a, for example, a 3% match on your, on your uh, salary, if you're making $60,000, that's $1,800 per year is the 3%. And if you, if they offer a 3% match, then you can, if you put in $1,800, then they will also put in $1,800. And that is free money. Like it's like a, it's like a bonus for your salary and you should absolutely take advantage of that. And the second thing is once the emergency fund has been established, can you put some savings into a Roth IRA? A Roth IRA is a way for you to take money that has been taxed and put it into a savings account and then invest it. And then as it grows over time, you don't pay income taxes on the growth and you will not pay income taxes in retirement. When you are in training and your income is lower, you're in a tax bracket that is lower. And so that technically means that after tax money costs you less than it will cost you as an attending physician. So Roth IRA contributions during residency and fellowship are really great if you can manage it. It's really, um, it's it's hard not to be stressed over this because I'm trying to think, you know, you finish your fellowship. You're Like you said, you could have in excess of $400,000 in debt that is continuing to accumulate 6%. Now, during residency and, 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 and fellowship, we are often advised that we should invest despite the fact that we are on low income. And oftentimes you switch on TV, whatever, so like even $100 a month. I mean, I don't know, like what's, a, I mean, if I come, if somebody, if a student comes to you and says, I'm going to give you $100 a month, Tyler, to invest for me. I mean, I'm sorry, you're going to laugh at them. Why do you do this? Like have like a 0.4 shares of Tesla? Mm -hmm. Well, there's, um, there's an investment product called index funds that is a good starter point for anyone so if a medical student or a resident does have the means to invest a small amount on a per month basis you can invest in an index fund and that is giving you access to hundreds of companies even with a small amount of money it is a it is a good starter place and like vanguard group is the most popular and well-known that offers such index funds so anytime, like, and I, I tread lightly because giving investment advice is a, it's, it's laced with a measure of liability on my part. Like if I say like, oh yeah, you should buy this investment. There's some liability there for me as a fiduciary. Sure. sure. But investing in an index fund is essentially investing in the entire U.S. economy. And so for someone who is in their 20s or early 30s, is something like if you don't invest like from a from an economic and like inflation standpoint i would venture to say that it is even bad advice to tell a young person to not invest when they could so so but but let's say you you're on a fellow salary let's say you're on a fellow salary whether it's seven it could be seventy thousand. i mean i could tell you as a first year fellow i made less than a third year resident but that was many years back but whatever money you're making some of it will have to go to a Roth IRA, let's say. Some of it is going to your emergency fund. Some of it is your daily cost and daily living and just being able to pay for the bills and rent and whatever it is. And whatever is left, you're suggesting possibly could be put in index funds if, if available, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. it could be as it can be as little as I mean, you can you can put it, I mean, it could be like a dollar a month if you really want to get down to it. But I've seen many scenarios where, you know, there there is something like twenty five dollars, thirty dollars, fifty dollars okay. a month. 
it's not even about like, okay, this is going to make or break the financial success of this person in 30 years. That amount of money is admittedly low and it will not move the needle as far as like, well, now I can retire when I'm 53 instead of 55. It's not going to have that impact on a financial stand from the financial perspective, but the establishment of the habit is why yeah. it's important. Figure out a way to do it. Tyler, how long does it take the average U.S. physician after they finish fellowship or residency until they pay the debt? Is there any? Are there any stats into? Is it ten years, five years, three years? Like, how long does it really take take them to do that? It's a significant range. There is not like a hard and fast rule that I that I know of. I've asked time and again. Um, I've pulled lots of people, and it depends greatly. And it's it's hard because. You have to be able to account for where did you start with? Like how much debt did you start with? And then it's also very specialty specific. So like, I know, like, I know this physician, she is uh, around 50, around 50 years old. And she, what she did, she just went into internal medicine and did not go on to fellowship. And it was not until she was like in her mid forties or late forties, even that the debt was finally gone. So it, you know, and on the other hand, like I know someone who is in uh, emergency medicine down in Texas who is just barreling toward paying it off. And it's like, like, I don't know all the, all the, you know, all the details of their financial situation, but I do think that they're making more than the internal medicine doctor that yeah. I'm thinking of. Yeah. I think uh, it's also a matter of like their cost of living. Like, I, like, uh, like one one person may have no children. Some may have many. Like, it, it sure. the factors vary quite widely. Sure. But yeah. So, and then the other thing is like, there's others who well, I pull them and I'm like, well, how much debt do you have? And they're like, well, I've got like four hundred thousand dollars in debt. I'm like, and it's like, I'm 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 six years out of med med school. I'm like, wow. Okay, so what's your plan? They're like, I'm going for PSLF. So like it's kind of hard to gauge like well what you know PSLF people it's all like 10 years. What so, is PSLF? So PSLF is an acronym that stands for Public Service Loan Forgiveness. Okay. It's a program that's offered through the federal uh the edu the Department of Education where if you work full time for a nonprofit organization while making payments on one of their income driven repayment plans then after 10 years your remaining debt will be forgiven. Um this that's 10 years yeah 10 years so 10 years is not an uncommon yeah I mean, if, if i was to say like on average i'd be like i'd say like around 10 years is probably not too far off from that from an average for someone who graduates having fully funded their tuition with debt there's a lot of folks on social media who you know if you as a healthcare professional uh whoever wherever whoever you are or wherever you are on the healthcare spectrum if you discuss finance or if if you complain about the finance, reimbursement, whatever it is, people say like, you know, you doctors, you make a lot of money. Stop your complaining and moaning and bitching. Okay. This is not how it works. You know, you should be like, you know, you're making way more money than any than 90% of the population, which is true, frankly. I mean, when you think about it, from the median average income across the country. Do you think that the physicians are justifiably uh, should, uh, are are justified to complain about uh, what's going on, or are we just a bunch of whiners? Everyone deserves 
a space for their own stresses. That's not to say that there aren't worse problems in the world, and it's important to simultaneously cultivate a an attitude of gratitude uh, to appreciate the things that we do have, and that is a contributor to mental health and supporting others. You know that they can feel that we have empathy toward them, so that you know. Uh, but that in no way means that physicians are not allowed to express frustration about their situation because the dynamics of the time sacrificed, like I've been around a lot of people in medicine, a lot of physicians, and they've expressed their situation to me and I can feel it. I can feel how uh, strapped down many feel at times, like where they're like, I just don't have control of my life and I don't know when I will. And that, that is, that is a real stress. So it's not just about like, it's not about the income. The, the income is great. And there is not a, I don't know. I've not met a poor physician. You know, many people have said that, like, I've never met a poor physician. They always, you know, there's always food on the table. There's a place to live. And so that's, that's a, it's good to, you know, to express gratitude for having our basic needs. But at the same time, what is the time commitment and like right. what has been missed? So, so, so if you put on, I don't know, economically, I have only two questions left and I'll let you go back. But, but, but economically, if you just put economic formula, is it, is going into medicine, take away the humanistic nature, take away helping people, take away that, all of these things. Because obviously, I mean, honestly, I never went into medicine because I thought I'm going to make money. Uh, this was never the motive. So I want to take all of this out. I want to literally almost as if you're thinking of this an Excel spreadsheet and thinking about economic formula. Is going into medicine a good economic financial decision? So we're not talking about the time sacrificed. We're not talking about the. Well, stress. it is it is time sacrificed, right? I mean, I mean, I you know, I could have a job at the age of twenty four and and start making money versus going to medical school and accumulating debt. I guess I'm taking. I, I believe the majority of folks go into medicine because they really want to learn and help people. That's my opinion. But I want to take that out. I want to think about economically, financially. Is it a good decision? when you put on the financial hat and the economic hat, like at the end of the day, is it worth it money-wise? I think so. I think in most cases, the my hesitation is that I know that there are physicians in the primary care setting that are drastically underpaid. And so I think that there are some who could justifiably say that it is not sure. economically a wise decision. Um, you know, anything, and you know better than I, I mean, the anything in peds, um, academics or in family medicine, that's, that's going to be, that's going to have that inclination. Um, it's still above average by far. Right. But like when I, so taking out the taking out the stresses, taking out the oh I want to help people. Now like, we're just looking at the time commitment and the money made. It's still like, yeah, it's still like okay, it's still fine. But for the lower paying specialties, I think that it's becoming 
a no, a no. Right. And like, I learned something interesting. I was a couple of weeks ago, someone was telling me that the reason why many in medicine are getting squeezed, especially those who run their own practice is because the reimbursements are coming down and the cost of running business is going up. Right. And so that is like, like we talk about like the compensation a physician receives as an employee, that's one thing. And that's another factor all into itself. There's some, you know, physicians that work for years and years and years and they never get a raise. So they're just kind of stuck there. And then, you know, 20 years from now, that money is not worth the same. But then for those who own their own practice, we're talking about profit margins that are reducing and reducing. Right. And so even while I'll say that the far majority, I'll say, yes, it is an economically wise decision that is changing. So my last question to you, Tyler, is are you able to tell listeners, I know, in your view, the top five or six financial pitfalls that healthcare professionals commit? I mean, any top five or top six that you can think of and um, uh, that you can share? Maybe not. Maybe there's two or three. Whatever you can share some of the pitfalls. Mm-hmm. Um. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the first things that come to mind are not being adequately insured with an own occupation disability insurance policy as soon as you can reasonably afford it. So that that timing is going to vary. Sometimes, you know, an intern could afford it. I mean, that's going to be like $130 to $200 a month. So for some, you know, for many residents, that's not affordable. Whenever that time hits that it is affordable for you, get your own own occupation, disability insurance policy. The second is to understand, like, I guess a pitfall would be not understanding where your money is going because like, it, it's not just about like, okay, well, I've I've spent too much and now I have this credit card debt, but it's about not really understanding where that money is going and why it's happened. Like I've met many fellows who are like getting close to the end of their training. They're like, I've got $35,000, $40,000 in credit card debt. And it's been really, really weighing on them for years now. And that is a quality of life issue that I, I think is the case. And even if they couldn't avoid it, even or maybe they could reduce it somewhat, but even if they couldn't, understanding and having more intentional spending so that they're at least eyes wide open about the scenario. Um, the third thing is, I would say, and final would be, be very, very slow about trusting people in the financial industry. Uh, because, and all of us in finance, we get paid for our time and and we should, but the industry is fraught with ways in which it looks like you're getting free advice and you're not. Uh, like that doctor I mentioned earlier, who, you know, he had millions invested with the firm, the old firm that I used to be with. And he was paying $18,000 a year. Like he didn't know any other way, you know? And it's not to say that he won't like, he'll, he'll be okay. But if you know in advance, like that making a different decision would allow you to have career and time freedom sooner because you understand like, okay, I need advice on this, or I need to buy this product. Understanding the way in which people like me are incentivized by money and how it affects our advice will protect you. So that's that to me is super important. 
That's really amazing. Tyler, I can't thank you enough. This was so, 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 so helpful. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and spending time with me. And um, hopefully I'll uh, bring you back in a year or so where we actually can talk about uh, the uh, impact on this uh, student loan forgiveness and the pros and cons. I'm going to bring somebody that opposes your views, whatever your views are. I always like debates. <laughs> but uh... I like your questions. They're uh, They're good. It's good to have... It's good to have these sort of discussions. I appreciate having you having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your support and being on this podcast. Thank you to Tyler Olson for being on this podcast and for providing a lot of help. I hope you really enjoyed this podcast. This was different. This was new and was actually discussing a lot of aspects pertaining to the financial aspect of uh, physicians. Uh, yes, sometimes people say we don't deserve any sympathy or empathy because we complain a lot about finances, but I hope by listening to this podcast, you understood how sometimes all of these issues could actually lead to some of the mental distress and mental health uh, problems that physicians could go through because of the debt, because of the loans. And there's a lot of opportunity cost that are also involved because you actually give up a lot of years that you don't do much uh, to generate income and you accumulate debt. Don't forget to let me know how I'm doing by direct messaging me on Twitter or by sending me an email or visiting my website. I'm very grateful for your support and very grateful for providing any input you may have. And as always, don't forget to send me your address and ask for the Healthcare Podcast t-shirt. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Paulo Coelho, the more violent the storm, the quicker it passes. Until next time, take care.